0: Hello and welcome back to the Earth Sea Love Podcast. I come to you today on location again. I find myself in Glasgow at the COP26 Coalition People's Summit for Climate Justice. <music> Hello and welcome, welcome to the Earthsea Love Podcast. This podcast is for and about women of colour and our relationship with nature, hosted by me, Sheree Mack. The Earthsea Love Podcast is committed to exploring the experiences of women of colour with Mother Nature. We want to provide spaces where the hidden voices in their environmental and conservation conversations can explore their relationship with the natural world. Inspired by our time spent outdoors, we amplify the voices of women of colour. Our stories Our conversations, interviews, photography, writing and artwork. We'll be exploring our legacies, histories and memories which have had an influence and effect upon how we perceive ourselves within the natural world and within the environmental and climate justice movements. Welcome to the Earth Sea Love podcast The Earth Sea Love podcast has been made possible by the funding from National Lottery Heritage Fund. Thank you. let's go at the cop 26 coalition people's summit for climate justice this has been over 150 events and sessions in glasgow and online which have brought together people groups and organizations from around the world who are fighting and organizing for systematic change Our current political and economic systems are built on inequality and injustice, racism and colonialism, and these are at the root of the current climate crisis, it's brought us to this point now. And while COP26, the UN climate talks take place over the way from the People's Summit for Climate Justice, those governments, those people. That are in there at cop 26 usually white men that are in that room they're making decisions about our futures without really listening to us and really listening to the people most affected by this climate emergency um so these people who are on the front lines who are experiencing climate crisis are here that's why this this people's summit for climate justice is so important because their voices are being centered here at this people's summit for climate justice and they're being centered and they're being heard as their demand for change and what's been so refreshing um for the events that i've been to so far is that black brown and indigenous women are taking center stage and they're their voices are being heard by a majority white audience but I'll talk about that in another episode because today I bring you another special commissioned episode in conjunction with Northumberland's National Park Future Landscapes Festival and this episode is with the lovely and inspiring Claire Rattenan. Um, who's an organic food grower and a writer based in East Sussex and she's got this book out that's called How to Grow Your Dinner Without Leaving the House. Claire's a plant lover and a food lover and this is such an apt episode to bring you after I recently sat in on a um, a panel discussion about seed sovereignty and how my mind has just been at expanded about the importance of seed diversity and seed resilience in a world where agriculture is dominated by big corporate organizations with government backing who are more interested in profit and controlling our growing and buying choices rather than having a secure and resilient food system working in harmony with nature. To both serve um, people and the planet and we need the conditions for more far more diverse seed system to thrive otherwise we as a population we're going to perish and we're going to take the planet with us if we don't start to adopt a more agro um, agro seed seed growing mentality and um, seed sowing mentality throughout the world so yeah so um this episode with claire who came to plants later in life who is now devoting her time and energies to get more people growing their own projects um organically and for more people to take back that control of knowing where our food comes from and what's gone into producing it um because that is power that's where the power would be lying and um as i said claire's an organic food grower and this talk is such a delightful talk because we're getting a history we're getting a migration we're getting a colonialism and we even get in a discussion of this necessity of bringing a decolonized lens to the practice of horticulture um so yeah enough from me let's get into this episode and i uh, hope you enjoy and thanks for coming back and listening bye for now Claire. <laughs> Thank you for being part of the Earthsea Love podcast. And these are a special mini series of commissioned episodes that are looking at particular issues around climate justice, racial justice, land justice, and trying to shift the narrative in terms of who has a voice or who has a right to have a voice within the environmental conservation movements so good to have you with us Claire first thing I ask is how are you and where you calling in from and can you see any nature where you are calling
1: a three-part question
0: yeah um
1: I'm I'm all right. I am, if, if, in all honesty, I'm quite burnt out, and I'm coming to the towards the end of a period of like quite intense work, and hoping that the winter will be what winter ought to be, which is a necessary quietening. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I am coming to you directly from a very very exhausted <laughs> brain and body, mm-hmm. but um, but I'm also I'm in East Sussex, which um, I've been living here for about two years, but before that I was in London. And from where I'm sitting, I'm really fortunate that I have set my desk up so that I look over my garden, which then leads onto uh, a a beautiful field full of ancient trees. So I'm very, very fortunate. And then in my garden, I can see my chickens pecking around when they're, uh, when the wind isn't sort of blowing their knickers around, they get very upset when that happens. It's been quite stormy. It's been a really stormy night last night, and so uh, it's still a little bit blowy out there. So they're kind of their feathers are getting ruffled. So um, I'm just watching them to make sure they're okay. <laughs> they seem a little bit distressed.
0: Oh wow! You've got chickens.
1: You have chickens. And you they have are...
0: ruffled feathers. I'm just yeah. loving that. Image. <laughs> they're ruff-
1: they're real fancy birds. They're really fancy. They're 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 called peck and bantams and they are they've got like big fluffy legs and a really fluffy tail. So when the wind blows, it all kind of gets rattled. And so they find that all a bit uh upsetting, a bit rude, and so they'll sort of run and hide underneath something. Um
0: they seem okay right now though. no I can I can definitely you know we are kin we are one with nature and wildlife etc and like when you're saying getting your feathers ruffled I can I can appreciate that man you know (laughs) outside forces or elements that are coming and ruffle us it's like you know I don't like it myself so I feel it for the chickens I do so thank you I mean I feel sorry for them being out there honestly but that's that's
1: the life of a chicken if they were inside the house they'd just be filling it full of poo and feathers so <laughs> the fact it's, uh, yeah they have to live in their own house in fact actually, I can see them all going inside now because
0: they it's a payoff with the <laughs> shit on the feathers in the house yeah get your feathers whippled outside anyhow um, <laughs> <laughs> let's yeah, I can go off of these tangents but you know where I see these conversations as a selfish as a selfish thing really because I, I love to talk to people but especially people that I I admire or come on my radar doing great stuff within the environment and and nature and horticulture which is your bag but I'm not going to tell others what your bag is I like the the individual themselves to describe it themselves it's like okay we could say what do you do or what do you get up to but I like to say is like what do you be because we're always marked by what we do or produce, and I think it's we actually we actually be what we what we do in a sense. So mm. what you've been?
1: Yeah, I suppose you. Are, who who am I? I guess. Mm. And I am a, a plants person. I am a I am a I'm a plants person who found their way towards plants. Kind of late, not late in life. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not. I mean, but late. But after I had a, I had a career previous to to finding my way to plants, um, and so I'm, uh, yeah, I, found, I I had an entire entire life, entire career, and then I found my way to the earth and to the soil, and so now I'm a plants person, and and it's funny because I don't the the we often use the word horticulture, I I, often, I I end up using the word horticulture, but you know my my principal interest is growing food, and and that's really what ignites me, and I'm I'm a food grower first and foremost, so when i when I'm uh sticking my nose in and having opinions about horticulture is somewhat from the position of an outsider in a in a willful way an intentional way you know I I'm I'm kind of I think I'm interestingly positioned adjacent to the horticultural world but not within it and so I while my so I can critique it in a very certain way or I can analyze it in a very certain way but I'm I'm not I'm not an insider so there's definitely things that I'm not party to but um but yeah uh so, so that's why I would describe myself as a plant person more so than like a gardener or a horticulturist or a food grower. Yeah, food is food is my bag. Food is food is my everything. And and when I started out on this journey, it was food that kind of growing food that was um, that captured my imagination and and hasn't sort of let go yet. And even though I now finally I have a garden of my own and it is it is full of ornamental plants, but uh, yeah, growing food is where I where I will always
0: put the most effort and where I'll always end up I think oh I love that I'm glad that you you have def- you know you you defined yourself or you put your own labels on you and I I so like you know you're saying a plant lover and it's food where it's which is a source and to be able to grow your own food is is a power it, you do have not just a stake in the land, but your stake in how you live your life, basically. And I think that's so empowering. But that idea of being um, an outsider to the horticultural sort of like scene and and running adjacent to it, uh, there's there's power in that position as well. (laughs) Because I definitely think so um so to just elaborate on that a little bit if you could that outsider experience or influence but then also why do you say you were late coming to being a plant lover and did something major happen in your life for you to become a plant lover because I know my relationship with nature came about after traumatic experiences and it was being with nature that actually healed me it's actually healing me because it's not an end process man it's oh, always in <laughs> it, it, it so it? it's always that process of becoming so so yeah so those questions I asked to you is like you know what was it that made you become a plant lover and mm. that outsider status right
1: well well yeah I I, I did not grow up. A feeling, um, an affinity, a connection to the natural world. That was not part of my upbringing at all. I think there's a, there's a, I, I grew up with this very strong story about what sort of success looked like, what achievement looked like. And it was very much like academic, professional. Um, so the, it's, all, all the things that are kind of the antithesis of like going and and, and uh muddying oneself on purpose I suppose and um and I was working as a filmmaker I was working as a as a documentary filmmaker and a producer um I actually worked in television first actually for four years and then I moved to New York and and sort of yeah shuffled over to documentary and independent documentary and and it was there that completely by chance I found my way to a rooftop farm which was um this incredible place called Brooklyn Grange which uh is the, the farm that I found myself to have come uh, chanced upon sorry was uh in Queens which is where I was living even though it was called Brooklyn Grange mm-hmm. um and yeah this this one acre of of land just totally changed my life I it was I, I it seemed so it was so implausible I saw this sign on a door that said there's a rooftop farm come and visit and I just thought it didn't seem like a real thing and I didn't know whether what to expect at all and went up this This lift this elevator up eight stories and and stepped out onto this like improbable little bit of like kind of bucolic wonderland and um and it was so full of divine plants and just like overflowing with abundance and it was and you know I've always been very obsessed with food that's very much like part of part of uh where I put a, a huge amount of my energy. It's it's something that is deeply important to my family. It's how we kind of, it's it's one of our kind of real connective forces. And so I love food, but I'd never really thought about how we grow food. And so, you know, suddenly having this moment of quite literally a light bulb moment, this curtain just fell over this, like away from this whole world that I'd never even thought about or engaged my brain and considering, you know, the. The relationship I had with food you know started at the supermarket and ended on my plate and, and there's there's a whole world before that that I had never even considered and so from that day I, I sort of tried my best to go back as often as I could because I just felt there was this whole thing this whole yeah universe to discover and and so I spent as much time as I was allowed to there I was volunteering every weekend um, you know going going to work in the week and then spending Saturdays there and and Two, I spent two seasons doing that, and then towards the end of my time in New York, spent even more time there because I would made friends with the kind of farmers and farm hands, and sort of wheedled my way to being able to spend a bit more time in there in the week. And it just really solidified the decision to, to come back to London um, and and see whether I could retrain and and learn more about growing plants in this in this way. And so I came back to London and moved back to Hackney, and and it was there I started doing more volunteering and then started doing some training and trained to grow salad organically with the uh, growing communities which is an amazing social enterprise in stoke newington um and then yeah, from there just did whatever I possibly could. I've done all kinds of bonkers jobs in order to be closer to the natural world. I mm-hmm. have kept bees, I have grown in schools, I've taught in community centres, I have grown for restaurants and cafes and a veg box scheme. I have done all kinds of things. And that was a good, I think it was about six years worth of five, six years of growing in London. And then yeah, about two years ago I moved to, to East Sussex and while I don't grow in that kind of like slight, that, that, that way, I don't grow for others at the moment, um, I'm doing a lot more um, talking about and writing about, um, about growing food and encouraging other people to do it, encouraging us to have these conversations that investigate the complexity of the the act of working with plants of working with the earth of of working the land and um and yeah so that's where I am right now that's sort of a whistle-stop
0: tour of the of my plant journey <laughs> I I mean like you're just speaking my language I mean oh good <laughs> It's the case of like you know it's feeding my soul, hearing this, it mm-hmm. really is you know you've got all that abundance in there, and that idea, what you're saying is like that curtain fell, and it was like your eyes had been opened to this 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 universe, which had been there all along, but you hadn't tapped into it or realized it, you know, food, supermarket plate, that sort of thing, and that mm-hmm. whole world is like before that and to be actually to get into it and 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 feed your soul through the process of doing it and that it's you're on this constant journey now and I just love I just love hearing that and how I don't know it's um well now you're you're saying that you're not so much growing for others because you're talking and writing about it plants and food and how we have this connection and what we what we need to know more about it and you're doing that because you obviously feel it's important to share you know your experiences this knowledge so other people can get on this tip and like think about where your food's coming from and start growing our own I get it I get it so you know you've had that training question is is like when you were doing this training and now you're doing this talking and this writing I mean your face is around I've seen you in magazines and stuff you know what I mean face saying, but your face <laughs> is around but like are you seeing many faces like yours in this this mm-hmm. I want to say genre or sector you know what I'm mm-hmm. saying as yeah. there many people that look like you doing this it, t- it took me a while to find find them, but oh yeah,
1: for sure. Like, black and brown people grow. They absolutely do. And like, the, you know, uh, all the conversations that came out of last summer, s- some of the like more grim and gross responses from the kind of institutions within the sector were, you know, questioned our existence. And it was, and like, it was so depressing, honestly, to hear that like, Oh you know are, are are people of color growing yeah of course we are we have been growing the entire time you know and and for me i I've, i this my story is very much about coming back to to the earth you know and 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 so you know i can understand why if they believe that my story is representative of other black and brown people then maybe they would think that there's not a lot of people who are actively growing but there there have been there is I mean, the vast majority of the food that we eat is grown by black and brown people. And like, and just because in the kind of like very white, very conservative world of horticulture and ornamental gardening, we're not very visible. It doesn't mean that we aren't working with plants and know what we're doing. And um, yeah, so I think, you know, that there's, there's not, there's, I, there could be more of us, put it that way. I think there's a lot of people who were probably in the position that I was in when I found my way back to the earth who who carried you know very weighty stories about what our kind of duty is as you know the children of immigrants or the children of you know the diaspora like what what our duty is to our, our parents and our and our grandparents and our families is is you know it, it often it often centers around you know status and, and kind of Not not wealth per se, but maybe just like comfort and in in you know and then safety and safety, and um and so you know I think there's a lot of people who who like me for the longest time didn't recognize that there was something they might be missing. You know, well at least I can only really speak for myself. I was so deeply I was I was wounded and like aching for something, and I couldn't find it. And you know, I was trying to fill it with all manner of things and a lot of the you know a lot of my kind of professional pursuits were looking for affirmation in a place that was empty of it you know it was it was it could never really give me that sense of like homecoming and belonging and 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 like like a heart opening that the work of growing plants has been able to give to me so I think there's a lot of people who who I hope to coax <laughs> into not necessarily even doing this as work. You know, I'm 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 happy to devote my entire being to it. But even if it's something that you just participate in, you know, uh, in your own space or as a part of a community garden, or you know, as a volunteer, or you know, if that's if that's feasible for you, I I the yeah, I mean, you're right that, that I've ended up somewhere where talking and sharing and writing about it is the kind of overall objective is to to coax people who think that this space isn't for them to reconsider that and 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 then through that maybe even investigate what they might have lost by believing that story because I believe that story for a really long time and and it kept me away from a, a lot of that yeah the healing that you spoke about earlier that kind of process of 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 kind of weaving myself together and and that's a lot of that is connected to having a sense that my ancestry and its connection and its and its relationship to land is doesn't have to only hold trauma and and trouble, and and that uh, that actually the trauma and trouble can be healed by reweaving myself into a sense of like really defiant ancestry and really resilient and powerful ancestry, and that is connected to land and reclaiming the right to work the land and the right to work with plants and to right to feel like you are part of. The natural world and not trying to transcend it or just disconnect yourself from it as a you know that's yeah I, I, i'm rambling <laughs> no
0: no not rambling. i'm saying you know people can't see me but i'm going yes and i'm going yes, I'm going, yes I'm Like preach preach because this is this is you know it is singing to my soul because it's oh. it's a case of like you know i have i've had these experiences They're mirror them the little details are different, but there's similarities there of, of you know that idea of status and looking for that affirmation and acceptance outside of us and thinking that through getting those those academic jobs and those professions that we're safe and we'll have we will be comfortable and this is something that is drilled in us because as kids of immigrants, they came here, and they they did have it difficult. You know, that was their priority to make a living, to be able to live, and not just, no, not even thrive, just survive. So we, we take that, and that's on board with us, but it is a case of not realizing that we are going around with these gaping wounds that are festering, and that we're looking to fill it or heal it by ugliness or other means that really are not there to sustain us and to come back to the land as you say come back to the land it's like yes and that's that's you know we, as you said weaving yourself into the land I love it because it's a kiss like it's almost like for me I get evangelical about it and I'm not religious I'm a spiritual person it's like oh my gosh it's like you're missing a tip people you know it's like get back to the land of me get in the sea get get back to that point of being whole within yourself and Mm. nature nature helps us do that nature supports us I fell in love with nature that meant I fell in love with myself you know and to pass that on to others is like it's beautiful yeah it's a service it's a service I don't mind taking up and doing and running with it but let's let's talk about that your writing and the books because the title of this episode once it goes out or what I put in the blurb is decolonizing horticulture we can change it if we want to if we want to say it like growing plants or growing food but yeah. you've also <laughs> you've got um you there was a pamphlet that I got which was horticultural appropriation the one with sam sam Mm. and in there there is that mention of decolonizing horticulture and like what does it mean to you to say that you know to do to use decolonization what does that mean you might have touched upon it but let's explore it a bit more because it's such a buzzword at the moment isn't isn't
1: it it is isn't it and i and i have to admit i you know, I kind of ended up after having submitted our text and images for that that piece for that pamphlet, came across a an essay called "Decolonization is not a metaphor," which like totally upended my the way in which I was using that word. You know, and, and it's it's an amazing essay by um, Kay Wayne Yang and Eve Tuck. And, um, and it basically talks about the idea that decolonization is a very real process. And it's something that it describes how, you know, settler colonialism and the kind of ravages of colonialism can be, you know, the re- the, the process of restitution and reparations and and the process of, of repatriation, all of those things, giving land back, frankly, to, to colonized nations. Um, it, it's a very real thing. And so when we use it in this kind of like slightly like academic or, uh, you know, when, we, when we're describing a like the dismantling of of colonial systems and we use decolonization in that in that context where we stand to dilute it so I think it always bears bears saying that actually you know for some for many for many communities that that word is powerful and that we we stand to be we need to be careful when we use it unfortunately we don't have an alternative I think yet and 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 so in absence of something more fitting I think we end up using decolonization because that is what we are doing to some extent. Is that we are, but we're looking at the ways in which colonialism has created the kind of the histories, the stories, the structures, the narratives, the language, the actual physical manifestations. If we're talking about the garden, we're talking about you know the actual physical manifestations of the plants that are here that we grow. All of that is a product of the colonial project, and and those you know that that doesn't just because. People believe that colonialism is over, which it isn't, by the way, um, because people want to believe that they want to believe that it's no longer relevant and the conversation doesn't need to happen because that's history and it's settled and it's done. And actually, I would argue that it is very much alive and well and is being kind of performed and reperformed in the practices of, of, of horticulture and agriculture of the, yeah, the stories we tell, the language we use, who we uphold, whose knowledge we you know, we learn and worship and, and attribute that knowledge to, you know, all of these things are, are a byproduct of the colonial system. And, and so we, I think, especially as as, as practitioners of colour, as, as horticulturists gardeners, growers of colour, I think I, I, I would be surprised if anyone can participate in the work of growing plants and not feel at least somewhat compelled to investigate the narratives that they are using, parroting, Um, learning and and want to trouble them honestly because they're troublesome and they're really you know lots of them are really problematic so so what does it what does it mean to me I think it means it means a number of things I think it means an interrogation of all their all and I I think this is true of any uh, any institution you can kind of insert take out horticulture and pretty much put pretty much any institution at the end of that sentence it's an interrogation of our assumptions about things and like and being really curious about um the norm the 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 things that are normalized the language that are normalized the names that are normalized and yeah all, all of those things the institutions that are normalized there's there's a whole you know a whole operation around horticulture in 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 this country in particularly that that looks like you know the formal gardens of manor houses and green you know these kind of enormous greenhouses full of tropical plants and and flower shows and you know all of these things and they are every year they're kind of just like performed every year over and over again just the season cycle the same thing happens over and over again and, and there's no kind of interrogation of why we do it who set the standards who create those aesthetic expectations Who decides what's in and what's out? Who? Where did these plants come from? Why is there no history attached to those plants? Why don't we talk about what it took to get us here? Because not only is it necessary, but it's also, frankly, it's interesting. I think it's the only thing that will keep me coming back to learning and learning and learning because there is so much more to learn than just uh, the way a plant behaves and what it needs and how to grow it so that it performs best at the perfect time of year. And and frankly. At a time of climate crisis, it's sort of grotesque and obscene to keep doing things the same way over and over again. And having these kind of manicured lawns that are, you know, drinking up our drinkable, our literal our clean water at at a time when the water you know a crisis of water is on the horizon you know there's so many crises that are coming for us and like we need to talk about also how these expectations that which i would argue are an heirloom of colonial times are still being are still permeating the landscape of of horticulture particularly but in in some ways agriculture too to this day and those all need disrupting because we are in a moment of a really pivotal moment where yeah the climate crisis is not going to happen it's happening and we need to all you know behave as though that is. it's not impending but it's it's happening right now and we all need to address the way that we behave that perpetuates the systems that are only going to exacerbate that further
0: yeah wow yeah it's like so much to (laughs) unpick there but I love the language that you use about interrogating and disrupting the the norm the system and um, sure,
1: burn it to the ground
0: uh, <laughs> yeah I mean that's the thing you know because it's really it's really weird because I'm part of this women's cultural network yeah it's you know it's it's black it's black women okay and there's a spectrum of ages and experience in there. And they're talking about creating a feminist doll. Um This is what we're doing. And this is what we want. And I'm, I'm thinking, Okay, then that's fine. But also for me that that's working within the system and playing by those rules at the same time of doing that I also want something that's running parallel where we say book the rules book the system and <laughs> let's you know as you say burn it all down and let's start centering us and operating in a way that best serves us and who we serve thinking outside of the way the system's working on the box it is now it's like the, there is another way there are other ways that we yeah, can cool. and it's to get to that way of thinking then because then there can be the action I totally get that yeah but what you said about um a performance going on because I'm finding when we're saying about deep, decolonization and getting rid of horticulture and putting in any other institution there. There's people Mm. that are in these institutions in position of power who are actually turning towards black and brown bodies and saying, how can we do this decolonization of whatever that institution is? It's like, all right, then I, I can understand maybe why you're coming to ask us, but at the same time, you need to be asking yourselves what you can do or what you have been haven't been doing. And it's almost as if like the responsibility is put on us to do mm-hmm. that, all that decolonization to do this, to just disrupt it. Even if it's a case of like when it's put on us, it's then, okay, if it doesn't work, then we get the blame. You know, it's like, like we tried the institution, we tried, you know, but like. <laughs> you know they fouled up you know we do you know it's that performance allyship thing so do you find do you find that that you you've been asked to be you know you're brought in to do this stuff or you're consulted um but at the same time there's that underlining things like well we don't really want to be doing anything we don't want to make oh yeah (laughs) Of course, and if shit don't happen or if it goes wrong, it's like you know you're getting the blame. You you get actually criticised for it. Mm.
1: Do, uh, well, I, I mean, uh, the criticise criticism hasn't happened yet, but I'm sure it's coming. Um <laughs> Well, there's there's a lot that you that, to unpack in what you've just said there because you know it's. I'm going to paraphrase here because I, I can't remember who it was who sort of said this the first time, but I, I see it circulating all the time. The the expectation that we have the answers to the a problem we didn't create is is actually is is gross. And uh, but but then you know obviously people like you and I feel it's incumbent on us to to also have to since we have strong opinions and we have a voice to, to use that as best we possibly can. But you're right, I think that um you know, I've done talks for various institutions and I think that when you get invited to do a talk and then they're like, did it, we talked about it (laughs) and that's it. And I'm like, so what are you gonna do? You know, and and it's not necessarily for me to, and and almost invariably every time I'm in these panel discussions or these talks, someone will ask me a question like, what's a very real way that we can decolonize our gardens? And I'm like, yeah, I feel like you're slightly missing the point because I cannot give you a bullet point. There is no such thing as a manual as to how to decolonize your garden, but, the, if you are actually paying attention to this entire conversation, what I'm basically saying is the entire structure around, all, all structures and systems around the way in which we do things were created by a system that won't allow us to change it in any fundamental way. And so I'm asking you to just bin it all <laughs> and try and think think beyond, you know, the, the structures that you've come to believe are, you know, benign and apolitical and are, are you know, a pre-existing state of things and so yeah I think I, 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 like, literally last night I did a com- I had a conversation with a with a botanical garden and it was it was actually a the kind of a, a side shoot of the botanical garden it definitely wasn't the it wasn't within it was with a kind of like rad- radical contingent within this botanical garden who are like up for these conversations but you know do I think that hours worth of, of chats going to make it to the kind of upper echelons of power. So they suddenly think, you know what, all these manicured lawns would be better off as allotments or be better off as small scale farms. You know what, we, we have got too much money here and too much wealth. And what we need to do is seed power to those who have been systematically dis- disempowered for, for such a long time and who don't believe that this place is for them. We need to actually hand it over. We need to hand over a huge amount. You know, they those hierarchies and those uh, enormous salaries that's where you could start like figure out how you can actually like yeah seed power there is so much power especially if you're looking at like, institutions like like a botanical garden they are looked at looked to as the leaders of of thought when it comes to to working with plants and 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 ultimately you know the climate crisis what they say has a huge impact and what they do has a huge impact so if you really want to yeah show that you're actually doing something dismantle the power structures that uphold your entire organization and figure out how you can actually invite people in who might have the solutions that we can all move forward together as a community because ultimately we're not while those structures of power remain in place we're not in this together you know and so yeah, um, I just, the people yeah. with the power and the money need to climb down. And the people yeah. who own all the land need to just give it to other people who actually will use it as opposed to just hoard it as an asset.
0: Yeah, no, no, I mean, that's it. It's a sim- It's a simple thing, you know. If you've got power and you've got privilege
1: and you've got wealth, figure out how to disperse that to people who don't and who might actually have like the will to make the world actually survivable for the majority of us, not just for the handful of people who have enough money to buy to build a bunker or fly to the moon.
0: Yeah. oh yeah oh yeah.
1: sorry oh, isn't yeah. that where Elon Musk is going seed power
0: seed power seed there there's you know, it's, it's, you know it's that it's that playing with language but that is it, the fundamental thing the foundation it? of it all You mentioned um, reparations and, Mm -hmm. you know, COP26, and there's a number of initiatives and projects that are using that as a vehicle to actually say these very things about, you Mm -hmm. know, it's like dismantling the system and, and giving like hard, hard examples and Ideas of what you should be doing, and you know, you're just saying there's like stuff your are more, more lord, let's turn them into allotments. It's like simple, man, easy it ass. Is. It is. No. I mean, there's also
1: you know. The, the, people I think when it comes to the know, I know that people find the reparations conversation really contentious and I am not an academic of reparations so for me I don't necessarily feel the need to like get into the weeds and figure out how to perfectly do it I just know it needs to be done and I just think that like when you start pulling the threads of these kind of decolonial conversations that is where it ends up reparations whereas and restitution and repatriation that's where it ends up and it's where it ought to end up because that's the only way that we can create equity and justice within a very very unequal and unjust world and and you know there's a huge amount of inequality and and injustice that was foundational to that colonial project that persists to this day and it's not even that hard to find the evidence for it you know there's a a huge campaign for the the Drax family the Drax you know that who had plantations in Barbados in Jamaica and they are still sitting on enormous wealth based like that has been like accumulated over centuries of both that exploitation and then just like being able to hoard that wealth they are i think they're in i want to say somewhere in the southwest it's all so visible all of their wealth is there and that needs to be handed back I think they might even still own land in Jamaica. I, I, it could be wrong, but irrespective, it's not that hard to put up, put together a spreadsheet of of what they they own, and then figure out how to redistribute that. Like that is incumbent on somebody, and they and they have enough. They've more, got more more wealth than they could spend in a lifetime. So that's the part that I don't understand. Is like why anybody would need more, would want more than they need, and that I suppose is and, that, and 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 growing and working with plants and being connected to the natural world really does embed that value system that you do not need to move through this world with more than you need you do not need to accumulate so much wealth that you can't actually spend it in one lifetime or even all of your children's and grandchildren's and grandchildren's lifetime
0: hopefully they'll be born if the planet is still here coming back to the system the system is yeah. set up to make us believe there's a scarcity yeah and instead of that abundance that you've mentioned and it is it's the greed and it's that accumulation of greed and power and wealth and it is it's a case of and what comes from that scarcity mindset is like I've got to make sure that I'm okay and -hmm. stuff everyone else and if it was flipped and it was abundance it was because we are thinking about everybody there's enough to go around for everybody and I just need you know my little much not to the point of it just overflowing and yeah I understand the scarcity
1: mindset if you are like living on the absolute you know on a poverty line but of course you've got to take care of yourself ultimately because it's impossible to it would be Grotesque to ask somebody who is living with absolutely nothing to think about everybody else. What I don't understand is a scarcity mindset when you have enough to quite literally fund a small nation, and and you still have a scarcity mindset and still feel that you have to accumulate it for you and yours and only those with your surname. That's the scarcity mindset that just like I, it boggles my mind. It drives me bananas because is unfathomable. I,
0: I apologise, Claire. Okay. I was I was giving them an excuse. I was offering them you know a way out right having yeah. that scarcity mindset but no really the, the, the reality yeah, is is yeah. that you're greedy and you're just hoarding it. <laughs> you know what
1: I'm they, they don't need excuses because they don't care exactly. you know we're, we're here you know having this conversation with each other wanting desperately to redistribute their wealth and they're just like you know sitting on their piles of cash like Scrooge McDuck and just like laughing at us having our little conversations about how unjust it all is because no one's holding them to account the systems are set up so that they will consistently be able to consolidate their power and privilege and wealth they don't care whether it's a scarcity mindset we can diagnose them with all kinds of psychosis and they will just be like a teehee but we don't even have to pay attention to you you know and that's the the problem is that who are they actually accountable to and they're just not part of our community so we need to figure out how to take
0: them down well, that's it, you know, that's, you know, never surrender, never give up, you know? It's like, because, you know, this is, the, this is what we're working against, but we're still doing it. Yeah, for
1: each other though, don't we? Yeah. We do it for each other because we don't have, we. you know, we, we if, if we can afford not to have a scarcity mindset out of necessity, then we do it for each other. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think we're going to be able to convince the hyper super wealthy to, yeah, to engage in a reparations model. I mean, there are actually some people who are super wealthy who actually are trying to figure out how to be taxed more and, uh, and, and actually make the argument that they should not have as much money as they do and then give it away. But they are few and far between. And so, you know, in absence of benevolent rich people, what do we then do? Then we have to, you know, we have to create uh, you know a movement that is a, is about us and for us and yeah that's why we do it we do it for each
0: other I think yeah that's true that's true yeah I'm checking the time so just two t- two things and it's it's uh, we've been talking about the present so let's just hit back to the past and then a little bit to the future it's like you mentioned that nature plants wasn't part of your upbringing or mm-hmm. your childhood what is your background that way family we said that the immigrants, where did they come from? And let's okay. talk to the future. It's like, what you got on the cards, man? What you got in the pot that's brewing?
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, so my family, my me and my family, we're from Mauritius, which oh, is ooh. a really small subtropical island off the coast of Madagascar. And um, uh, yeah, it's a really interesting place and I am learning, continuously learning more and more about it. Um, so allegedly an un, unpopulated island when it was discovered <laughs> discovered <laughs> by the Portuguese even though people have been using it as a kind of trading post, I think mostly kind of on, along the kind of Arab Arab trading lines so yeah it was not it was not necessarily unknown but it was quote-unquote discovered by the Portuguese first and it has been it is truly a the product of colonialism and imperialism and the slave trade and indentureship it's It was it was magicked up from all of those systems because they they say there were no native people there. And I think that, you know, it's possible that they're right. Um, But we don't know that categorically, obviously. Uh, We know that there was a a lot of endemic species, including the very, very famous dodo, which is a a perfect example of the ecological disaster that is colonialism. we might all just be like teehee stupid bird got eaten by all of those colonists and I'd argue that actually it's much more complicated than that and it was one of the first bits of true and deep evidence that colonialism is part of like uh the pernicious part of climate the climate crisis mm-hmm. and that yeah it has been and still is an ecological disaster. Yes, so that's where I'm from. <laughs> and my parents, my parents came here. They were recruited by the NHS. It's kind of a classic story, isn't it? When a, they were part of the British Empire when they were born, um, and even I think, I think Mauritius had got its independence maybe a few years before they left, and they came and settled in leafy, boring Surrey. <laughs> um, it was very, so I had a very suburban upbringing, and I was really, really bookish, really bookish. So I just really didn't was very uncomfortable in the outside world it was very in the, in the natural world I was very uncomfortable in the outdoors found it were very itchy scratchy dirty didn't like it um so it was a real it was a real journey of homecoming to uh to realize that those were just very powerful stories that needed to be dismantled and that dirt is not the same as soil and uh yeah that's that was a beautiful a beautiful re- recognition that actually I could be in this space and disrupting these ideas of what I should be doing and looking like and presenting myself as and be happy, you know. And and, and you know, sometimes I can I, I do over romanticize the food growing aspect, you know, it's really hard work, especially if you're actually a growing, you know, if you're a food grower who who grows and that's their livelihood, you know, the food system is yet another thing that is deeply, deeply broken and deeply implicated in the climate crisis. Um, so you know, I've definitely definitely moved through different waves of um of a loving relationship because loving relationships are complicated aren't they a loving relationship with this work (laughs) so yeah we've we've, we you know it's been wonderful revelatory deeply profoundly transformative and so so important and also just like torturous and painful and really really difficult and I've had to you know kind of re organize my life to to look very very different and to be very very different to make space for it you know quite a distinct pay cut and I've had to work in very weird and wonderful ways in order to make it happen so you know I don't want to sort of play down the fact that there's a there's also a privilege to being able to do the work in the way that I do it in that I can I have the capacity because of my previous career because of the education that I've had I'm able to pivot into doing other sustaining things like writing and talking you know and there's a lot of about this work and, and there's a lot of um there's a lot of food growers who are who are grafting six seven days a week and it is merciless so yeah always worth pointing that out because I can tend to get a little misty-eyed about it because now I only grow on a small scale for myself it's very easy to just be um, talk about its delights, but I have suffered its trials also. <laughs> and that's probably worth mentioning too. Okay. I've forgotten your second question. What was that? It was like one? what you got brewing. Yeah.
0: Anything oh, yeah. on, the, on the horizon
1: that you'd that's like to share? Okay, this news may or may not be out yet by then, but um <laughs> it's kind of an exclusive. Um, only because I've been really secretive about it, but I've been working on a, on a book. And so this whole last year has been me very, very deeply drowning, embedded (laughs) in the writing process, which Mm -hmm. is why I've been, which is why as the beginning of our conversation, I was like, I am an exhausted terrible, terrible mess. Mm -hmm. Um, Because that has been a deep and all-consuming process and has taken me to to many places. Also writing, writing during that winter lockdown, I wouldn't recommend it to anyone particularly, especially if they're kind of excavating some of their their old old wounding and trying to talk about trying to talk about what they're passionate about whilst also talking about pain. It's yeah. very hard. <laughs> so um so yeah, that's what I've been up to. Um it hasn't been properly announced yet, so it's kind of a loose I mean if you if you if you if you search for it on the internet, you can it's not that hard to find. But uh-huh. I like I like a <laughs> little bit. I haven't announced it to to my world yet because I, I just didn't want to you know some people are really happy to kind of announce their books where, before they've even done them. I think I knew that mine was going to ask a lot of me and I really didn't want to be visible during that process. I didn't want anyone to say how's the book going when yeah, I exactly. was like crying into my laptop which yeah. happened fairly regularly. Yeah. <laughs> so
0: so yeah so that is I suppose an so this sounds like it's uh, and I don't want to put a label on it you know because mm. it is what it is what it becomes isn't it that's part of the process yes. but it sounds like it's memoir with nature in there and the marrying of the of the two and and how that connection helped you as we just said from the beginning the, that healing those wounds and um exactly. It's a it's a hell of I mean, I'm I'm on that journey now I'm doing my own mixed genre memoir, which is about my black body with slash in nature and um, the pain and the joy that comes from that. Um, But there's power and there's um, growth and development about going through the process of writing that and trying to make it clear for ourselves first first of all and then to share to share our stories um so I I'm so so excited to hear that that you that that's in the pipeline I really am because you know it's like I'm on it I'm on it like a car bonnet, you know? <laughs> it is, you know, it's been such, it's such a, a joy and pleasure to talk to you. So, yeah, you so many things that resonate, but so many things that you remind me and make me check myself about. And it's so hopeful and joy-filled and heart open to think that you're in the world doing what you're doing, you know and I mean that from my heart because it's like it's like yay it's like yay we're we're doing it we're coming (laughs) for you
1: writing our stories and like that's a huge part of that it's just like well I mean we know we exist but the book you know if you look at the 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 historical record the books you'd think that we weren't there sometimes you know especially Mauritius is particularly bad for this The, the historical record is is Ill kept, erased, you know, deleted, burned, whatever that doesn't really exist. And so it took me. It's it's been a hard slog trying to find my way back to the those those stories and those narratives, and and then recognizing that a lot of those narratives are the victors' narratives, and trying to find us in the cracks, like you know, which is where we always ended up, right? We always ended up in the margins, and we always ended up on the maybe on the legal paperwork or Mm -hmm. in in our imaginations in the bloodline like in the heart and that's what this process has been is just trying to find where my actual ancestry dwells and you know those places have been erased and invisibilized and silenced for a long time so my hope is that this book is some at least it is a remedy for that for me and maybe
0: it will be for others I don't know maybe just my mom and dad yeah yeah yeah! oh beautiful beautiful and you know that just it's like it's all just like there's that cycle it's that spiral coming back to that idea you know we've said about seed and power and here we are talking about getting back to your origins and your roots you know like your ancestral roots and how it's it's necessary and and it's all right to be doing it been in the margins and you still being in that outsider position it's like this is what we're we've got or this is what we're taking and this is what we're claiming but we're actually turning it around and turning it into a position of power and and, and beauty and I just think it's awesome amazing so thank <laughs> you,
1: <laughs> you know, thank I'm you, so excited guys. to hear about your work
0: too because it sounds like you're doing something really similar well yeah I am it's just finding I'm hopefully you know you mentioned about that lockdown winter and not to do the writing well hope (laughs) that's what we're out of lockdown really but like coming up in winter I'm hibernating and I'm just getting it knocked out I mean I've got bits of it but I need to have that focused time on it and I think that's about giving myself permission it's giving myself that permission to go to go deep and dive deep and you know, face what's around there and totally. around a bit more.
1: You can't just you can't dip in and out of that hard stuff. You know, you have to you have I'm to. Have- I've <laughs> been trying to just dip in. Yeah. And- <laughs> it's so hard. If you're going to really go deep, you need to make like room for it, room for it yeah. to be a mess, honestly, and to feel yeah. like a mess, and to to you know, look like a mess, and mm-hmm. and then to kind of that's the thing that I think is so hard that you know it's not. I mean, I have so much respect for anyone who has written a book, no matter what the subject matter, because it is such an undertaking. I keep coming back to, because this is just genuinely, this process has somewhat terrorised me, like, (laughs) it's been really hard. But the thing that's hard is that, you know, you have these really complicated feelings. And so you have to move through those feelings or like at least investigate and excavate those feelings. And then you have to be able to figure out how to articulate those. You're finding, you have to try and figure out how to language all of that. And then you have to figure out how to fit it into a story. And it's so hard to do all of those things. Doing one of those things would be incredible. Having, yeah, all the extra layers of trying to make that emotional experience both coherent and knowable and and using the right words that feel like they have integrity to what is the truth of what you're feeling. And then, yeah, structuring it into a story. That's
0: really difficult. (laughs) yeah man. but it's it is a hell of a journey, but mm. it is it is worth it,
1: I think so I
0: hope so i'm
1: I'm at a bit of a weird put a point in the journey where i I feel like I could easily just crawl under a rock and stay there forever, <laughs> so um, I'm hoping that this winter I'm going to kind of resource myself to face whatever book promo looks like come next year, so. Ooh.
0: Uh, well I'm excited and you know you're saying crawling under that rock you know what's under the rock is not dirt but soil oh so yeah soil. okay so you're <laughs> in your element
1: carbonation that's <laughs> a comfy place that rock is safety that rock is not like I'm not I'm not hiding because I'm afraid well like, I'm a little bit uh-huh. afraid I'm hiding because it's safety under that rock and then I'm, uh-huh. I'm <laughs> No, yeah <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm at least at least two to three months under that rock and then maybe I can come out with a little bit of energy on the other side come spring. <laughs>
0: Well, thank you, Claire. Thank you so much for your wisdom and share and heart that you've brought to this episode. You are appreciated. So thank you kindly.
1: Thank you for asking me. It's such an honor and a pleasure. And you are just so delightful. I knew you would be. And this has been such a lovely conversation. I'm so glad that we found time for it.
0: Yeah, me too. Thank you. And, you know, maybe once the book's out there, we can invite you back on to talk (laughs) about that process Um, awesome
1: you know storytelling is so important and like and I you know I think it's it's not always available to everybody and, and you know to some extent when you embark on a project like this you're it's like it's cathartic therapeutic it's something it's processing it's you know you're moving through stuff and and if that's not doesn't feel available to you then sometimes those feelings will just stay locked in and I you know so I really want to encourage other people to no matter whether you're writing a book is a is a, a whole shenanigan that doesn't that's not necessary <laughs> unless you really want to but I do really want to encourage more people to like embark on the range journey of storytelling because we've been we've been ignored for ages I want to know your stories I don't want to read the same stories over and over again I've never been that into the classics exactly give me your your stories tell me your history tell me the bit that they wanted to leave out don't let them leave it out
0: yeah you write it I want to read it (laughs) yeah yeah there you go inspiring inspiring thank you Claire thank Thank you. you